heard a gem of a sermon on Sunday. I want to play a piece of it for you. But of course, we will start with Advent Week 3. Let's talk about joy. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains. And the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strains. It doesn't take too long a walk inside of Hobby Lobby before you realize that joy is one of the main themes of the Christmas season. You will find that word embroidered across all kinds of various home decor, and that's where we're going to start today. The advent, meaning the appearance, the appearance of joy. Advent, meaning appearance, consider the logical flow to it. The appearance of hope, the appearance of preparation, and then the appearance of joy, of hope fulfilled. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Amongst a lot of other things, I get to serve the people of Beachwood Church, and they're an awesome people. I get to serve them as their pastor for teaching. We meet at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, South Carolina. We'd love to have you any given Sunday morning, including, get this, Christmas morning. I don't I don't, th- I don't, think we're changing any of the, uh, the timing but that's apparently a controversial thing out in the church world, as I find in some in some core, uh, excuse me in some Facebook groups, of whether or not to have church on uh, Sunday when it's when it's Christmas. I I know we will be there, so we if you have a desire to be in church on Christmas and yours is not meeting, I'll be preaching that Sunday, Lord willing. The very talented Logan Rice will be leading in worship, so you come on out. We'd love to have you. As I just mentioned, there is a a flow to the. The Advent themes. You hope for something, week one. You prepare to receive that hope. And then what happens when you actually get it? It's joy. I've thought about this many times in the sports world. Very few of you are sports fans, so I'm going to get off of this within 30 or 40 seconds. But there is the idea of hoping for success for your team. The team actually doing the preparation and when success actually comes, there's joy. It explodes in joy. Some of the most irrational displays of emotion that come from me happen in the sports world. And I, while I hope for my teams to do well, I didn't do anything to prepare for it. I didn't contribute at all. The most I've contributed to the Dallas Cowboys is buying some of their junk. And I don't think they needed me to really improve on their billion-dollar franchise. You have this logical flow of hope, then preparation, then joy. I told you I wanted to have a scripture and a song every week of Advent for you that goes along with the theme. And here's where I went for this one. It was Luke 2. That's the the seminal passage about Christmas. It's the one that Linus, I believe, reads in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. But I want to point you towards three characters very quickly. This will take ten minutes at the most to talk about joy. Three characters in the Christmas story. One. The shepherds, they are rough men in the dark, not well thought of. This is likely a rough and tumble group. I would imagine the jokes told on that hillside, if I understood their original language, would make me blush, and I probably wouldn't want to be friends with these guys. They're a little too hard for me. In modern-day parlance, you might say they've got a lot of neck tattoos. That's probably who we're dealing with in the shepherds. And so when an angel jumps onto the scene in the dead of night, I'm going to assume these guys were not just sore afraid, as the King James said. They probably thought, oh, this is it. Judgment is coming for us, the, the rough and tumble. J- the judgment is coming for us, the outsider. 
when an angel shows up, it's fear. And instead, they get a fear not, I bring you good tidings of great joy. And it shall be for all people. And then what's that joy? They point towards Jesus. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so they immediately tie joy. Well, what is the joy? Well, I have an announcement. There is a king come. Joy comes. And the shepherds, somehow, in all of what was probably their their hard lifestyle, recognize the fulfillment of prophecy. And we know from the Luke 2 narrative that they go away from that hill joyful and telling others. Their joy is so overfilled, they got to tell other people about what they know the king has come. The Messiah has come. The promise has been fulfilled. The hope that the people prepared for has happened. Now there's joy. At the conclusion of, of that part of the story, you're going to run into a guy named Simeon. Simeon's an older guy. And the Lord had chosen to reveal to him as he works in the temple. He was a guy who worked in the, in the, in the temple, which had a lot of corruption at the time. But still, this was the mechanism whereby the, the Lord received worship. It was the mechanism the Lord provided for the organization of the, of the covenant, of the sacrifices and the, and the offerings. He got to work in that realm. And the Lord had given him a prophetic word that his life would not pass before he had seen the Messiah. And as you read the narrative, as Jesus is brought in, I think the I think it actually says for circumcision. If it doesn't say it out loud, I'm I'm fairly confident that's why Jesus was headed to the temple. Lord reveals that you are you're seeing the Messiah. You are holding the promised one. The hundreds of years of silence have been broken. God has become man. The Messiah is here. That's that's really what Simeon recognizes. The Messiah is here. The promise has been kept. And the text actually says peace. That it's overwhelming peace. But I. I think you could read into that narrative and how he behaves and the, and the things that he says to Mary and Joseph. He's just filled with joy. He had hope for the Messiah. He prepared in the temple, and finally it is fulfilled. And just like the shepherds explode with joy, Simeon's is more, I guess, mundane, but there's joy to hope fulfilled. And then finally in that passage, you're going to come to a woman named Anna. If you actually if you read the passage... Both Simeon and Anna do, if you read it a certain way, kind of creepy stuff. I don't remember the exact phrasing. I should have pulled this up before we started, but when Simeon gets Jesus brought to him, he takes him up in his arms, and he, I think Texas raises him up to give him a blessing and says something like, Lord, now your servant, let your servant depart in peace according to your word. And if you just think about that from the outside, if you just think about being Jerry, uh, Joseph or Mary, uh, an old priest guy just took your kid, held him up, and said, Lord, your servant can die. It's, it's a little creepy behavior. You, you could freak out about that. And then the next part of the text is a woman named Anna that says she never leaves the temple. She's basically this old widow who never leaves the temple. Says she's a prophetess, so she probably tells people stuff, weird stuff that uh, freaks them out. But the last, that last character in it is Anna, who when she finds out what has happened that it's been revealed to Simeon that this is the Messiah, that from that hour, she began to give God to, uh, to give thanks to God. She began worshiping. You can see the joy. So Luke 2, read through it, looking for all the joy that the first advent gave. 
to the very unlikely shepherds, to the faithfully waiting Simeon, and to the dedicated Anna. Now, one other thought on joy. I'll give you the song. It was C.S. Lewis who wrote Surprised by Joy. And in that book, he has, he has a lot to say about joy. Ultimately, the surprise was his impression of Christians and Christianity was that if he ever became one, that it wasn't a happy faith. It wasn't a happy religion. But he found that the more close, closely he understood Jesus of the Bible and the more he understood the God of the Bible, the more joyful his understanding became and the more joyful he became. He was surprised by joy. Surprised that this God as he originally saw was kind of austere and had a lot of rules. That God is actually quite fun. And there's a lot of joy to following the true God of the Bible. A lot of joy in following Jesus. One of the illustrations in his book that most sticks with me is this one. And I want to, I want to give it to you. For here, here's a Christmas gift to you. It's a C.S. Lewis illustration you might not have heard before. It goes something like this. When you're lost in the woods... I would love for you to think about that real quick if you could, if you've ever truly been lost. That might be a road trip. That might be an actual hike in the woods. I think I've told you the story before. I was in Sedona, Arizona, and I really did get lost. And I I freaked out a little bit. Like, I kept my head about me, but, like, my heart started racing, and I really thought, I'm lost in a mountain desert. And I, none of my apps are working. I'm too far out. I can't figure out where I am. And obviously, it all worked out for me. But, but think about a time you were actually lost. His, his phrase was something like, the first time you see a road sign, the first time you see a familiar tree, waterfall, and the first time, or his specific thing was road sign. You've made it far enough out of the woods that you see something on a road. It's exhilarating. You explode with relief. It is an exhilaration, but that's not the joy. The exhilaration isn't joy. That's the adrenaline uh, and, and comfort and relief. He says what, what happens is that you get back on the track, or maybe you get in the car, and you start to see way more road signs. You start to see way more evidence that you're just going to be fine, and that's where joy grows. It's not the moment of exhilaration of knowing everything's going to be okay. It's continuing to walk down that path, and that exhilaration it ebbs, the, the high emotion, emotionalism of it ebbs, but what grows is this confidence and joy that everything's going to be okay. And so for us, the signpost of our hope has come. He came in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and laid in a manger. The shepherds proclaimed him. Simeon thanked the Lord for him. Anna worshipped him. The signpost has come. It's exhilarating when you first know it. But that signpost is actually pointing somewhere. It's pointing down a road. His first coming is pointing down a road. It's pointing down a road till he comes again. And now as we sit knowing the first advent happened and we're walking in the exhilaration of it, we walk towards his second coming, we should just be growing in joy. Growing in the joy that one day we will be reunited with him our maker. It is the joy of Christmas, the joy of the Advent season. And so, of course, then, the hymn or the song for this week, I'd love for you to find a version of Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee and 
read through that, sing through that, maybe sing it as a family. just want to read you a little part of it, and we'll be finished with the Advent stuff, and we're going to come back. I have a clip from a sermon I heard Sunday at my church that you just you really need to hear these three or four minutes. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before the opening to the sun above. Now, I love this part. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. I don't know if the three words could mark our time much better. Do we live in a moment in the Western world of sin, sadness, and doubt? Sin pervades everything we do. I'm not even talking about the secular world and its insanity. The secular world is so sinful, it's gone insane. My sin drives me nuts. The sin in the church is enough before we get out into the insanity of the world's sin. But then you even see that. You see how the the sin, not just of the church, but the sin of a secular world is hurting everybody. I want to see a day where the clouds of sin and sadness and doubt are melted away, where they are driven out. That verse ends, giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. Well, that's the joy of Christmas is to see those things happen. A couple more. All your works with joy surround you. Earth and heaven reflect your rays. Stars and angels sing around you. You're the center of unbroken praise. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow and flashing sea, chanting bird and flowing fountain, praising you eternally. Consider that. The God who makes earth, heaven, stars, angels, fields and forests, veils and mountains, all those things, put on a body, and it was a baby's body, in one of the hardest times in human history to live. Last verse I want to read you. You're always giving and forgiving. I could stop right there. The God of the universe, my Savior, he's always giving and he's always forgiving. That's enough to fill up my entire night right now. I could just dwell on that. He's always giving and forever giving. He's ever blessing and he's ever blessed. I love this. He's the wellspring of the joy of living. Where is the core joy? What joy will never run out? Well, it's not money. It's not your looks. It's not your success. It's not your titles. It's not your reputation. It's not your spouse or your family. What's the wellspring of the joy of living? It is Jesus. He's the ocean depth of happy rest. Last four lines, loving Father, Christ our brother, let your, let your light upon us shine. Teach us how to love each other. Lift us to the joy divine. Happy Advent season, week three. I'm encouraging you to lead your family, lead you in the theme of joy in the Christmas season. We'll be back in just a little bit with a sermon. I want you to hear some of the audio from it. We need to talk about it. It's a really good one, very powerful. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I think of Sundays as both the completion of one week and the start of another. In in some ways, you know, in the Christian walk, as we think about the Word, we think about Bible as as the food we need. It's the feast to celebrate the completion of one week, the and also the feast to fuel the week to come. 
And boy, did I get fed on Sunday. There's some audio here you really need to hear, and we need to talk about some of the implications thereof. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. You can find me, your host, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my weird name. You will find me there. You will not find me on Snapchat or TikTok because I'm a grown man, and I shouldn't be there. It's kind of just weird, I think, for me to be there. And if I have people in their 30s and 40s on either one of those and you use them, I'm not calling you weird. I'm just being funny. That's all I'm trying to do. It's all a joke. Take no offense to it. Oh, yeah. Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. I knew there was one more thing. Corey Truax Show at gmail.com if you want to respond with anything. We're in a revelation series at Beachwood Church. It's been a lot of solid teaching in a controversial book. I, I grew up in a world that uh, here's how we understood the revelation. It is uh, highly symbolic until we don't want it to be, until we are rigidly requiring every word to mean exactly what it means. Uh, we read modern Western Europe and modern Western America into it, a book that was written to a very specific time, to a very specific people. We rip it out of that context and here's a lot of things that we thought, uh, grow, at least I thought growing up. If you trace these thoughts, they don't, I don't even think they're 200 years old. A lot of these thoughts, I mean, you can actually trace them largely to Appalachia, some of the intellectual history here. But uh, idea that things are just going to get terrible and there will be a rescue. Uh, a rapture is coming to take us away. Even worse things are going to happen here while we are away. Uh, and then after a, a seven-year terrible tribulation, uh, Jesus returns. There, he's going to rule for a, a literal 1,000 years, uh, like 1,000 revolutions around the sun. There will be unbelievers on the planet. They will live, work, have children, get, get married, have children, and die. They'll live their normal lives. But under now the worldwide domination of King Jesus, his followers, people like me, will live forever in uh, perfected bodies, and then at the conclusion of that 1,000 years, uh, for some reason, Satan is re released. There's one final battle. All of the unbelievers are destroyed, along with all the workers and the agents of Satan, and then uh, true paradise, heaven and earth are, re are reunited. That's how I grew up. I started coming out of that in my early to mid-20s, and have started to crystallize the what I think, but what I know historically, I can I can prove to you, was the more common view of what Revelation was for thousands of years, of, well, a couple thousand years of church history, what the majority of Christians always believed. So for context, before we get to this clip, I need you to know we just came through about 50 minutes, 45 minutes or so, of teaching about different views of the of the idea of the millennium, of what it means for Christ to reign, for Satan to be bound, uh, for what a lot of Revelation chapter 20, I think, verses 1 through 6 is where we were, what a lot of that teaching means. It was just good, solid theology. But as any good preacher does, any good shepherd of men and women, that knowledge gets applied to Monday morning. That, no that knowledge that we just got gets applied to how I live my life. And so there's a very good question for people like me who would say, we believe Jesus is reigning right now. He is on the throne. Any power that everybody from Benjamin Netanyahu to Joe Biden to, uh, who's another world leader, I can't, uh, to Vladimir Putin, every, all of them, every power they have, it's because the Lord lets them have it right now. 
that all authority, as Jesus said before he left earth, all authority in heaven and on earth, it's given to me. It belongs to me, King Jesus. And then he gives out some of that authority to you to run your household. He gives out some of that authority to Knox White to be the mayor of Greenville. And he gives out some of that authority to, I don't know, Justin Trudeau in Canada. And everyone who's been given that authority, they will answer for how they used it. They used it in, in concordance with the, uh, how, how Jesus intended them to use it. Right? That's, that's the idea here. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. But then we say, and we are ruling and reigning with Christ. This is scripture. We are his, his viceroys, not just ambassadors to a foreign land, but we are wielding his authority, wielding his power. And so as we come to, towards the end of the sermon, there was, I'll, I'll say it this way. Me and my wife, I still love saying that. Me and my wife will talk about sermons every time we hear them, whether it's from Beachwood or other places. And one of my common questions is, what's one thing you remember? What's one thing you remember from any given sermon? And often we will remember different things, but she went first, and what she said was one of the most that, excuse me, that the most powerful phrase or most powerful portion, when she started saying that, I was like, ding, 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 right here, same thing. The thing I most remember was this part. You know, you'll get to one phrase here. So remember, that's the theme. We've been talking about the millennium. Those of us who know, we believe Jesus is fully reigning right now, and we reign with him. Well, what does that mean to reign with Christ right now? I'm a 36-year-old man with a house. How am I reigning with Christ? Well, excuse me, with a household. You're who you are. You're a, a mom, a dad. You have your job. How on earth are you reigning with Christ right now? Well, let's get some of that. This is from our lead pastor at Beachwood Church, Doug Truax Jr. Here's how he answers that question. You are a new Adam and a new Eve. Go and shine the image of God in the world. So husbands and wives, you are commissioned just like the original Adam and Eve were. You're commissioned by Christ to go in his authority, knowing his word, to, to raise up a godly generation, to be fruitful and multiply, to train your children in the way that they ought to go. You want to rule and reign with Christ, take dominion over your own house. Ooh, that hits hard. You're kings and queens with Christ. You are prince and, I don't know, I don't know how you want to say it, prince and princesses, whatever it is. You are reigning with Christ. Well, how do I do that? Get control of your household. Dominate your financial life. Know how you're spending your money. What money's coming in and where's it going out? Don't spend wastefully. Raise up godly kids. Love your wife. Love your husband. Be faithful. God's given you a little part of the kingdom. That kingdom is your household, your family, your resources. You want to reign with Christ faithfully? Take control of the household he's given you. Rule your own lives. Know how to order and prioritize your work and your study life and your marriage life. Know how to serve and love one another. We are not sitting around waiting for a Helivac rescue. We are on a conquest mission. That was the line. Been sticking with me for days. She, when I was talking about it with her, that's what she said. That line, we are not waiting for a Helivac rescue. We are on a conquest mission. Listen, if you're ever going to get if you're ever going to get a tattoo, make that one of the uh, make that one of the nominees, because there is a theology of waiting for a hellavac rescue. That it's just the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You're going to wait for the Lord to return. What if it What if it doesn't have to be that way? What if we're not just on top of the embassy 
waiting for someone to come get us? What if instead we have been sent forth to conquer? Not with guns, but we've been given the sword of the word of God. We've been given the armor of God. What if you're not called just to hunker down until you get rescued? What if you're called to go forth and conquer? And I think we are called to the second one. I can feel it in my bones. I think I can prove it, prove it to you scripturally. What are we called to? Take the kingdom of God, look at every other kingdom, and say, you're not king. That's governments. That's philosophies. That's everything set up in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom. We do not wait for rescue. We go and conquer. Christ is ruling. He is reigning. His kingdom will take over all things. And he is inviting you not to hunker down and just hold fast until he shows up, but to be taking over all things, not politically. Good, good, immediate, good uh, clarification. So we're, we're calling you, yes, you're called to take over everything. And especially in this environment right now where there's the fake Christian nationalism uh, scare or whatever it is, you, you hear those words, yeah, you're called to take over everything, and immediately, well, we're not actually saying politically, just take political power and make people do things. It's If you're thinking that, well, you're thinking too small. That might be a subset, but you're thinking much too small if you think about that as how Christ reigns alone. Not by sword, not by winning offices, but by changing hearts. None of us has to run for office to change these United States of America. You want to change this country, you preach the gospel to your neighbors. You live the gospel faithfully. You stop losing your children by not caring what they are doing spiritually. Okay, what's coming here next? This is in part what hit so hard. Parents of children. Admittedly, what you're about to hear is challenging. Be challenged by it. It's an important challenge indeed. You want to reign with Christ because we are reigning with Christ. That have domain of your household, including domain over the good gift you've been given in children. Again, this is more from Beachwood Church, Pastor Doug Truax. In their lives. The world is killing its offspring. There is a negative birth rate among sinners. They're taking hours. Because we're giving them our children eight hours a day in public education and never asking a question about what our children know. Can I talk about a nuance of what he just said there? There's certainly an argument that I don't reject outright. People that just straight up say, get your kid out of public school. There's some conservative commentators doing it right now. And if you're one of them, listen, I don't really want to argue with you. I think we're too closely aligned to be arguing about such stuff like that. But there are those that just straight up say, get your kids out of public school, period, bottom line, homeschool them is the only thing you can do. I suspect that's probably the case for a lot of people, that they don't have a good public school, that it's poisonous to their kids' spirituality. That's probably not the case everywhere. There are some decent public schools. I can even name uh, some of those. And I, I wouldn't make a law where there is no law and just straight up say, you have to get your kids out. But a great nuance there, he said, is you hand them over to the public schools for eight hours the day and you don't follow up and you aren't involved. You don't actually know what's going on there. Yeah, if you send your kids to be around people eight hours a day and particularly to be taught and formed by a particular adult, you should be super involved with that. You should have a really clear understanding of what's happening in those eight hours, being diligent. Why? Because you're ruling and reigning. You've been given a small piece of the kingdom, and the thing that we're going to be asked in eternity is, what did you do with the part of the kingdom I put in your stead? I put under your rule. King, 
queen of that household. How did you rule? How did you rule over those kids that I blessed you with? They're taking our kids and raising them for themselves. Because Christian parents aren't ruling and reigning, you're surviving. Does that feel like a punch? Sometimes it should. I mean, I, I don't have kids. I don't, I don't know how much it can punch me. And if you have been just surviving as a parent and not ruling and reigning, that's, this is not a call to guilt trip. This is a call to action. It, man, it was probably 2007 or eight. I read a book that, man, this is not in my notes. Uh, let me make a note here so I know how to come back to where I was. Okay. Um, I, re- I read a book called America Alone by Mark Stein. And it was all about that birth rate thing. It's why it's been a big theme of my broadcasting for years that the Western world is killing itself, not just by the suicide epidemic we have now and our opioid epidemic that we have now and how we have eaten and slothed ourselves into terrible heart disease and, uh, and, our, and our diabetes problems, not just in those ways killing ourselves, but just choosing not to reproduce. And I've talked about how it's the Islamic world that has all the babies. And so, you know, it's, it's only so many generations away where Western Europe just dies out and Islamic folks will take over because they had all the babies and they, they moved in. I don't know who takes over here, but we aren't having a lot of kids. But one of the things that's troubled me in the past is the reality that in America, it's the Catholics actually more than the Christians, than the, the Catholics and the Christians have most of the kids. Over the last 40 years, the plurality of children born are born to people who claim Christianity. Then how on earth are we such a pagan people? How, how is it possible that we are now a culture confused so much about gender? How did we become the culture that says your sexual desires are the centerpiece of who you are? Nothing could be more important about you than what you are into sexually. How did we get there? We had a bunch of kids born to ostensibly Christian households who did not raise them Christianly. That's what happened. And he's totally right. They took our kids. Some of you know who I'm talking about. It's people in in their 20s and 30s and even 40s right now that you know grew up in an ostensibly Christian household who hold nothing of Christian values. What happened? They They were taken. I can name people in my own life right now. Parents who lived the American dream, Christianity, and their kids are way off, totally rejected the faith. Also, no, I need to say this. Parents, I know some parents, people I love deeply that listen to the show and have wayward kids. I don't want you walking away from this with any guilt. You did the best with what you had, I'm sure, right? I'm, no one needs to feel guilt about the past, especially if you've reckoned with it and all that. So I just had an immediate conviction about not putting a guilt trip on somebody that doesn't deserve it. So if you started feeling that, I guess test that feeling with the Holy Spirit and see if it's, it's legit. But I'm not blaming you for losing your kids. I'm telling you in a big, meta, broad way, I've thought about this and it has upset me. We, out, we outbred them. We outbred the secularists. The, the leftists and the secularists didn't have a lot of kids, but they just took our kids from us for two generations now. And if we don't do something about the home, if we don't rule and reign in the home, we're going to lose another generation of them. We're losing our children. We are called to go out and preach the gospel to our neighbors. And we're losing the citizens of the kingdom that are in our own homes. Like, wow. Profound, actually. The, the gospel commission says, 
Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Oh, wait, I'm in the wrong spot. The one that says, go to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Our design was, go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, and somehow we're losing the ones underneath our own roof. Yeah, that should be troubling. Yeah, that should be a challenge. It's not just trouble and then boo-hoo-hoo. It's, hey, this is a problem. Let's get it fixed. I'm out of, I wanted to play a little bit more of that sermon. We ran out of time. So let me just give you this. I've got to take a break. I, I believe it. I'm convicted of it. Uh, we are ruling with rain, reigning with Christ right now. It's only a question if we're, if we're doing a good job of it. The only question is if we're taking it seriously, that we have been given domain over some part of the kingdom, and we're responsible for it. And, our, and so now, are we going to be distracted by the pleasures of this world? Are we going to be uh, drawn in by the trinkets and the experiences that it can offer? Or are we going to get serious about what we're called to? By the way, that doesn't mean using 24-7 to do important things. The Lord also calls us, again, to joy. That was, that was segment one. We're called to enjoy his creation. But we're probably way out of whack on how much time and effort we spend on our enjoyments versus doing the work of the kingdom and ruling and reigning. Hey, if you want preaching like that and you don't have a church home, Beachwood Church in Greenville, we'd love to have you. I'll be preaching Christmas morning, and we will uh, be there on that Christmas morning. Uh, if you're not, if your church isn't meeting, you are certainly invited. We've got to take a break because I am over time. When we return, I do actually want to talk about a current event thing. I want to get to this, this case at the Supreme Court regarding the website designer and the arguments that were made. A lot of disturbing commentary came out of that. And I want to tell you about it when we come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Huh. The irony of this story, and the tar- let's go with the irony of the timing. I think you'll see it when I share it in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. Glad to have you with us. Here's the headline from Dave Urbanski. Restaurant cancels Christian Group's event because eateries staffers felt uncomfortable and safe. And if you read the story, in Richmond, Virginia a place called the Metzger Bar and Butchery, just hours before an event for the Virginia chapter of Focus on the Family, called them and said, we're not hosting you. You booked this months ago, but we're not hosting you because you're an, L- an anti-LGBT book, uh, group. They're not. They are just for traditional marriage. And our staff feels unsafe. And so we're discriminating against you. You can't come eat here. This event happened within days of arguments before the Supreme Court in the other direction, where, if you haven't heard, there's the 303 Creative versus Alinas case. Here's the very qu- very quick facts of the case. Colorado has a what feels like a totalitarian communist arm of the government called the Human Rights Commission, and they have a, a law there about non-discrimination against LGBT folks, and all, here's what they really do. They go after Christians. They're the ones that went after Jack Phillips, who refused to bake a cake for a gay wedding, and... This woman, uh, who owns 303 Creative, she's starting a web design company, and particularly to do wedding websites, and she is preemptively suing Colorado, saying, if I go into business, and the way the law is written right now, I'm going to end up being punished if a gay couple comes to me and says, I want you to make a 
website for the wedding and I refuse them, you guys are going to go after me. That's the facts of the case. So she's suing Colorado to either put in safeguards for religious liberty or just throw out the law altogether because the, the law is unconstitutional and it violates her First Amendment rights that she might be compelled to write something, to create something against her own conscience. That's the case. I listened to the oral arguments at the Supreme Court. Some of the arguments from the gentleman arguing, the Solicitor General for Colorado, arguing in favor of Colorado's law, they're wrong and stupid, but they're not out of out of bounds and bigotry. At least one part did, I think. Just anti-Christian hatred. But the voices on Twitter on the left and just the general uh, commentariat on the left, it's different. So I want to say out loud, I don't think this is the majority of people on the left, but there was a the small cadre of hard progressive secularists that their commentary around this case emphasized a reality that I've known for a long time but maybe isn't always on display. And that reality is this. They hate your guts. They despise us. Again, I don't think that's the majority of the left. I actually talked to, I don't have many liberal friends, but um, the ones I do know, and even looked at some of the commentary about people who I just think are just normal liberals. I call them 1990s liberals. 1990s liberals basically are today's Republican Party. Um, If you think about it, the Republican Party has no plan to cut spending anywhere at all. No, no plan to ever cut any government. Almost half of the, well, no, I shouldn't say that, maybe a, a third of Republican senators and House members just voted to enshrine gay marriage. The 1990s liberal, the Bill Clinton liberal, is basically just today's Republican Party. And so uh, the, the 1990s liberals I talked to, they are on the 303 creative side. They're on my side of this because, of course, that's the case. Of, of course, someone with religious conviction shouldn't be required to participate in something that they find objectionable and immoral. But that's hard left. They just despise us. They can't stand that we exist. And here's why. Let me get one step deeper as I like to do. Sin is never satisfied. The sin that gets somebody, that gets me and gets you, but also gets the secular progressive leftist, it will always want you to take one more step. It will always want more from you. If it's a porn addiction, it will be one more deviant twist on the next thing you watch. If it is a if it is a lingering eye, if it is a lust, it's going to be dropping into that person's direct messages on Instagram. It's going to be that one over-the-line comment you should not have made to that woman at work or that man at work. And then after you do that, there's going to be one more. The sin always wants one more thing. It's never going to be satisfied. And whatever step you take, whatever sin you commit, there will always be one more. The enemy of your soul, the devil himself and all of his minions, that is their way. There will always be one more thing to bring you to destruction. And because sin is never satiated, it's never satisfied, its appetites will never be satisfied, it will destroy anything that will keep it from its satisfaction. And the secular progressive left, I think they see it accurately. Christianity, the church, stands between them and their sinful appetites. And if they need to destroy us to get their sinful appetites, they will do that. Here's how I know it. I mean, I've said this once recently, but I think we need to keep the refrain. We went 
really quick from 2002, we just want to be able to share insurance and be in each other's wills. That's, that was the argument for acceptance of gay marriage. That was the original argument. We went from there in 2002 to 2022, we now are at, endorse my every sexual feeling, celebrate it and say it's good, or I will destroy your life, and while I'm burning your life to the ground, I will laugh about it and we will have joy. Where we started was, well, you want us to be able to have hospital visitation, right? And we got to bake the cake or we'll destroy your life. Again, I don't, I don't just think, I think I have some data on this too. That's not the majority of folks who are left of center. It is a hard group of secular progressive leftists who, I, listen, I, I think we're starting to talk about things getting demonic. Some of this ide- ideology is just straight up demonic. And they have hatred. I've just I've seen it seething out of them. The idea that anybody or any philosophy would say, hey, your, your sexual satisfaction is not the center of life. Any, any force that would say that's not the case, they are, they're seething angry against it. So that's one, one, one thing I've seen out of the reaction to this case is that there is a class of people, I think it's relatively small, that just sort of openly despise Christianity and want to see it destroyed so that they can pursue whatever their appetites say. Number two, I think the discussion revealed, maybe more than ever, the very modern Western sexual, a secular ethic, that sex is everything. That is new to human history. Sexual attraction being an identifier, as in a core identity, something that you want to put in your email signature, or that you have certain pronouns for, that you, you want everyone to know. Like, it would be the thing that you say first about you. Sexual attraction being an, an identity marker is actually novel and weird. It's, go, go do your history work around cultures around the world. Who you're sexually attracted to has not been a core identity for any people group until about the last 30 or 40 years, well, about 50 years, in the West. It's, that's still not the case around the world. We're so America-centric and we're so Western Europe-centric that we think that's the case. That's not the case in Africa and Latin America and Asian cultures. It's starting to bubble up because the internet, and we have so much of the internet in the West, is infecting other places. But this is new. For some people, their sexual attraction, it's their entire personality. There's nothing else about them that matters to them. They're not interesting people, but the thing they, the thing they need you to know about them is whatever their sexual attractions are. And that's the challenge they feel from Christianity. I mean, the, the, the only thing that matters to them about themselves, their sexual proclivities, Christianity says, what it feels to them, like Christianity is saying, the, really the only thing you care about it when it comes to you, it's wrong. Now, the actual Christian message, while, yeah, we would call immorality immorality if, if someone's sexual expression is outside the bonds placed on sexuality in the Bible, yeah, we'll call it immoral and wrong. But really the call of Christianity in the moment would just be saying this, the thing that you're saying about yourself that is where you find all of your meaning and identity, your sexual attractions, you have found all of your meaning and identity in sexuality. You just found your identity in the wrong place. There's like a hundred things more important about you. And 
you should dwell on those and think about that. This, this, uh, this discussion that I've been watching, it's just, it has revealed more than ever that sex and sexuality is the center of a lot of the West, and it's weird. It's very unique to us. This idea of sexual liberation and sexual freedom, it's a Western creation. It's a post-enlightenment creation. Like, for, most, uh, for most civilizations in history, your sex life actually is considered something that affects the community. Most of human history acknowledges that. That, sir, if you're running around having sex with a bunch, a bunch of women, that if those women are married, you're destroying families, which destroys children, so destroys the next generation. If you are having a bunch of kids you can't take care of, you're causing a lot of poverty. M- ma- madam, if you are having sex with a, a man who's married, you're, again, destroying families. There, yeah, your, your sexual behavior, or, or you could be spreading disease. Throughout history, we all understood, for all of human history, your sexual behavior, yes, affects other people. But it's the West that says, there is nothing more fundamentally private and important to who I am than what I do sexually. I, th- I, think, it's, it's, I think it's psychotic. It, but it's, it's modern Westernism that elevated sexual freedom to the pinnacle of being human. You doing what you want to do sexually is the pinnacle of humanity. Nothing could be higher. Which is, of course, psychotic. It's also very Freudian. And that's really all that happened. We became the psychologized people. Freud came along and basically said, sex is the great motivator. It's the thing that defines a lot of your psychology. We became the psychologized society. And Freud taught us about, what's that, about 70 years ago? Sex is everything. And now we're just living in Freud's world. Now, so... Number one, I just found from the case and the commentary around it, they really do hate our guts. It's not, again, it's not a majority, but there's a vocal group that just despise Christianity. And why do they despise Christianity? Because two, it's being revealed here that the core of identity in the West right now is some sexual freedom and anything that would say anything about your sex life. Uh, critical. It has to be destroyed. Now, the case itself. It's a clear winner. 303 Creative is a clear winner in this. I would all, I'll tell you why in a second. But even if the justices were to rule wrongly, I think this is a good opportunity to, talk, to review something we've talked about lately. It would be important for the woman who is suing to obey God rather than man. If her conscience tells her, I cannot make a website for a gay wedding, and she's being compelled by the government to do it, it would be incumbent upon her to follow her conscience, and then to suffer the consequences. But the, uh, that's something we have been talking about recently. You, you must obey God rather than man. The actual case. It's not hard in one way. Well, actually, it's not hard in any way. One quick thing is, if we are setting off a conflict between religious freedom and sexual freedom, in a court of law that's supposed to be determined by the Constitution, this isn't hard at all because religious freedom is in the Constitution. Sexual freedom is not. And so if one is going to win out over the other, religious freedom is the superior freedom over all things. Uh, it's actually our, it's our first amendment, literally the first part of the First Amendment. The First Amendment has speech in it, freedom of speech, it has freedom of association, freedom of the press, uh, freedom to assemble, uh, for redress of grievances. Before it says any of that, it says, Congress shall make no law establishing religion nor prohibiting the free ex- respecting the establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Religion is the first right. But two, it is uh, being argued dishonestly by uh, the solicitor general that 
this would in, in some way allow people to discriminate on race. I want to talk about that in a second. But first, that's not the case. Um, race is an immutable characteristic. And let's say for a second, sexuality is also an immutable characteristic. Both are just characteristics that no one can change. Let's just assume that for a second. Even if you don't think that, let's assume it. No, But someone's race is something that they are. They can't act it. There is no acting white or acting black. You are just that thing. If, you, if you're attracted to the same sex, you're having sex with the same sex or marrying the same sex, that's an action. That's not a characteristic. So even if one is an immutable characteristic, the other is an activity. The two are not analogous. And so while they're trying to make that argument, it is specious and on its face false. But two, yeah, the if we're going to have to err on side one or the other of allowing people to discriminate based on immutable characteristics, it is the better world to live in where people are free. They're even free to be terrible. And then allow the um, like uh, allow the, the market to work. If you find somebody who only wants white people working at their or only wants white folks at the restaurant, or for that matter, uh, a place that says this is a this is a black space, this is an Hispanic space, and it's the only people we want here. All right, well, let the market do its work and put those people out of business for being terrible. All right, well let's let's do it that way. Uh, but we don't even need to lean on that argument because the argument that sexuality and race or at least acting out on one's sexuality, is the same as race itself. Again, one is an immutable characteristic, the other is acting uh, in response to an immutable characteristic, or as some would say. The, <laughs> the way I started this segment, it is totally ir- so ironic that while that case is going on, in Virginia, some LGBT activists got their restaurant to say to Christians, you can't come here. Yes, we'll discriminate against you. At the exact same time, they have attorneys at the Supreme Court saying, you can't have people discriminating against gay weddings. The hypocrisy of what secularism does, a non-Christian mind, it can just twist itself in knots. Thank you for listening to the Corey Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.